Let's pray. Father, we come to a part of your word here today that is so important and yet perhaps difficult. And so I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to have wide open, humble hearts that whatever you say, we will accept and be okay with. And I pray that we would not not be just dragged along by your word, but would have wide open hearts to delight in what you've said. Would you help us to understand it well in our heads and in our hearts? Would you help me to communicate it well, Lord? And would you cause us to not just encounter words, but to encounter you in your word, that we would be that we would be given, Lord, a, a taste of your glory here and be shaped to reflect that glory more. Lord, this is supernatural. At least we're praying that it will be. So would you make it so, God? And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. Two weeks ago, when I was preaching um, in Genesis 16, we looked at Hagar and Ishmael, and I talked about how Ishmael was given a name before he was born, and I mentioned how that put Ishmael in a very small group in Scripture, which included several others, and I listed those several others, and in that list, I failed to include John the Baptist, whose father, Zechariah, was given his name before he was born. And more than one of you reminded me afterwards that I missed that. And that made me really, really happy that you caught my mistake. And I mean that. It really did. It shows that you're listening. It shows that you know what's in the Bible. You're comparing what you're hearing to what's in the Bible. And you want to make sure that what you hear from the pulpit is what's in the Bible. And I just want to tell you, keep it up. Um, And I was so encouraged. I mean, that was a minor mistake, but I was so pleased you caught it that I think I'm going to make mistakes more regularly just to keep you sharp. (laughs) And I know that you know that I'm kidding. But uh, I was very happy about that, and I, I, I hope that you never stop expecting that whoever's in this pulpit, that they bring you the word, they bring you the book, and nothing less. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we go back to Genesis 17. Uh, today's passage, we're, we're going half of Genesis, last half of Genesis 17, first half of Genesis 18, and, and this, this, this passage is built around two encounters with God uh, that have some similarities, but also some pretty big differences. Two encounters with God that Abraham has, and there's an interlude in between. And the first encounter is, isn't really a new encounter. We're just picking up where, where Josh left us off last week. Last week we heard in the first part of Genesis 17 how God changed Abraham's name from Abram, reaffirmed his covenant with him, established his covenant, and gave him the covenant sign of circumcision. And today it's we're just continuing this encounter with God as God makes his most specific promise yet, his most specific promise to Abraham about his promised son. And so let's start in this first encounter, uh, which begins in verse 15. And, and remember here how, how in, in biblical narrative, if, if, you, someone, if you just keep saying, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, what's the implication? The implication is that Abraham's saying nothing. He's speechless. And so that just continues as God continues to speak to a speechless Abraham. 
and he gives him a promise for his wife, Sarah. And you might say, who's that? I thought Abraham's wife's name was Sarai. Well, it was, but verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, minor changes like Abram, Abraham. With Abram to Abraham, there is actually a change in meaning. Uh, with Sarai to Sarah, there's not actually a change in meaning. They're both different ways of saying or pronouncing the word princess. Uh, so that's important that there's uh, there's a royal meaning for her name. So the meaning doesn't change, but the fact that it does change suggests that something is something is changing here. Other places in, in not only the Bible but the ancient Near East is a name change often accompanies a major change in life. So, for example, kings would often have a name change when they ascended to the throne, and and so and so even though the meaning of her name isn't changing. The fact that it is changing is showing that something really big is happening here in her life. Abraham is going to have a son by Sarah. And not just, not just a son, who will be any old son, but she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. That sounds familiar because that's what God said to Abraham back in verse 6. And here for the very first time, the very first time, God makes very clear that these promises are going to come through Sarah specifically. And and that's emphasized if you look in verse 16, rapid fire, her, she, her. I mean, God is being very explicit here. The promises to Abraham are not going to come through Hagar, but through Sarah. And this child is going to be a, a miracle. I mean, Sarah's around 90 now. We find that out in verse 17. 90-year-old um, women do not often bear children, to state the obvious. Now, even if we look and we say, okay, Sarah lived to 127 years, so what if she just aged more slowly? And what if we squish that all back to a normal time span? Sarah's still past menopause at this point. She's well past the time as she acknowledges in the next chapter. And in case you think I was graphic for me to say that word or inappropriate, she uses much more uh, specific language or or much more specific language is used in the next chapter. Um, She acknowledges plainly. She's well past the time of having children. So what God is promising here is a miracle, full stop, a miracle. So a promise for Sarah. Now we get a question from Abraham in verse 17 and 18. How does Abraham respond? Well, verse 17, he falls on his face again. So apparently he'd gotten up because he fell on his face at the beginning of the chapter. He's maybe gotten up and boom, he's, he's down again. Now it's tough to know, is, is Abraham falling face down because he's amazed or shocked or in awe or bewildered? Similarly, it's tough to know exactly what's behind his laugh in verse 17. He laughs and says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? So this could be a laugh of, uh, and a question of unbelief. Like he's laughing at how ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah, a child do it, someone who's 100. Okay, it could be that kind of a laugh. Or it could be just a laugh of, of processing something amazing. And I've, I've seen people, you've probably seen people do this, they're just like, oh, really? And there's sort of a chuckle that goes along with just sort of like taking in like this amazing news. So I, I think we should be careful that we don't jump to the conclusion that Abraham is laughing in unbelief. 
Because I think what he what he says next kind of shows that that no, I, I think Abraham is processing this in a very human way. But what does he say in verse 18? And Abraham said to God, so he's kind of said something to himself, and now there's a request to God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So, so that, that suggests that, no, no, he's not unbelieving here. He's, he's grappling with what this means. God has promised offspring through Sarah, but he already has a son who's like 13 at this point. 13 years of, of growing up with this son and understanding this was going to be his heir. This was going to be his child. This, he was, this, this was it. See, we sort of think of Ishmael as sort of this little afterthought. Like for 13 years, Ishmael was it for Abraham. And he's realizing now, if the promises are going to come through a son of Sarah, what about Ishmael? And so he says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Do you see how we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the, 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 how the promises of God are now conflicting with the reality. Abraham has another child because he didn't wait for God. And the weight of these bad decisions is just starting to, starting to become clear. There's going to be tension between promise and reality. So Abraham's wondering, God, God could, could, you just, could you just be okay with Ishmael? Like, why not Ishmael? What's, what's wrong with Ishmael? Why can't the promises come through him? So I don't think Abram's disbelieving that God can give him his child through Sarah. I, I think he's wrestling with, with what this actually means. Well, what does God say to him in verse 19? God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. There it is. One more key place in scriptures where a child's name is revealed before he's born. Isaac. Yitzchak is maybe a more correct way of pronouncing it in Hebrew. And I don't say that just to show off. I, I actually think it's important that we remember that, you know, these were not English people. They weren't white people that looked like us. This is, these are people that would seem very strange and foreign to us in the way they sounded and smelled and ate. And, and even just the sound of those words can help us remember that. Yitzchak means he laughs. Which at this point is a reference to Abram's, Abraham's reaction when he heard that he was going to have a son. And, and actually the theme of laughing shows up a fair bit throughout this story of Isaac as we're going to run into multiple times. But what God goes on to confirm is that it is through Isaac, not Ishmael, that his covenant is going to be established. Halfway through verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Do you get the significance of this? Okay. In verse 7, God told Abraham he would establish his covenant with him and his offspring after him for an everlasting covenant. What Abraham finds out here in verse 19 is that this does not this promise does not include all of his offspring. Promise you and your offspring to be their God. Abraham's finding out not all of my offspring get in on this because this covenant God is saying will be established not with Ishmael but with Isaac. And we know and this we're going to come back to this later on that that this covenant did not include all of Isaac's offspring either. 
because God established his covenant with Jacob and not Esau, which we'll come back to. Now, number four here, this, this doesn't mean that Ishmael gets nothing. There is a future for Ishmael. There are some benefits that come from being Abraham's son. Even if you're not a child of the covenant, even if you're not part of this covenant, there's still some benefits. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Again, wonderful little reference here, because what does Ishmael's name mean? Ishmael means God hears. And so here God is is demonstrating that God hears, because he says to Abraham, I've heard you. I've listened to you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. That's verse 20. So God made some of these promises to Hagar, and he's just unpacking them now to Abraham, that that Ishmael has a future. But, verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Notice, notice in this final statement how God's promises to Abraham have gotten the most specific yet. Back in chapter 12, they started really wide. I will bless you and make you a great nation. And as, as, as we've gone through this, these chapters, the promises have narrowed in and gotten more and more and more specific. So what does Abraham know right now? What Abraham knows is that he knows the time a year from now. He knows that that is going to be his son. He knows his name, and he knows going to, which, which of his wives it's going to be with. It's going to be through Sarah. And that this child is the child through whom the covenant promises are going to come. And at this point, Abraham's first encounter here, first encounter in our, in our text with God is, is concluded. And we read in verse 22 that God went up from Abraham. So now we get to the interlude, which is kind of the second big stop in our passage today. And this interlude is an act of obedience. It shows how Abraham, at 99 years of age, and Ishmael, at 13 years of age, and all the men of Abraham's household, at all their various ages, were circumcised. We don't need to elaborate on why this would have been uncomfortable. Some of Abraham's men likely complained. This was not in the contract. But Abraham obeyed God. He obeyed right away. Verse 26, what does it say? Verse 26 says, that very day. Abraham didn't drag his feet. And Abraham obeyed all the way. Verse 27, and all the men of his house were circumcised with him. We, we should cheer at this moment, okay? We should want to cheer for Abraham here because Genesis has not hidden from us all the times Abraham has stumbled in his walk of faith. I mean, it, it's shown us as he's, as he's made some very foolish choices and, and as he's blown it. But Genesis also takes the time here to draw our attention to Abraham's steps of obedience, and we should see that, that even though Abraham blew it, even though Abraham was a sinner who needed atonement, Nevertheless, what's the overall direction of his life? It's, it's faith-filled obedience. And he stumbles and he gets back on and he stumbles and he gets back on and the overall aim of his life 
is, 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 is a righteous life of faith-filled obedience to the Lord. When he stumbled, he got up and he kept trusting and he kept obeying. This could kind of almost be the point of today's sermon. Now, we're going to land in a slightly different spot when we sew it up, but just, just hear this. No matter how far you have stumbled, you are only one step back from being on the path of faith-filled obedience to the Lord. Don't let Satan make you think that you've wasted too many chances and squandered too many opportunities and too many years, and you might as well just stay there because what good are you? Okay? Don't, don't think that. Abraham, 13 years after a major mistake, is invited by the Lord to trust and obey. And he does. And we should cheer. It's never too late for Abraham. It's not too late for you either. And with that pause, that interlude to celebrate his act of obedience, actually many acts of obedience, and we could even say leadership, the leadership it would have taken for him to get his whole household together on this, we move now into the second encounter with God in our passage today, which is the first half of chapter 18. Now, what's interesting here is this encounter with God is, is, is unique. It's not a vision. It's not the word of the Lord came to Abraham. No, this time God actually appears to Abraham in bodily form. He doesn't do this very often, but he does it here. And, 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 and when God first shows up with two angels, uh, we're not sure if Abraham even knew who they were. But as time goes on, Abraham becomes aware that this guest of his is, is no mere mortal. And I'm tempted here to talk about the fact that uh, I know people and, I, I, um, and I'm actually one of those people who has had an encounter with what I believe was an angel. And, and in the moment, you don't really notice it, but it's afterwards. You're like, oh, wait a second. And, and that, that seems to, to be what's happening here. And by the way, if you think it's crazy that I would say that Hebrews 13.2, which is in your study guide, says we should show hospitality to strangers because some by doing have entertained angels unaware. Say Hebrews 13 motivates Christians to show hospitality because you might be showing it to angels. So I, I think that this kind of thing might be more common than, than we think. Um, but let's, let's look here at this visit from strangers in, in verse, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, that's where he's still living, he's been here for a while, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So he's taking shade. This is the time of the day where you have your siesta. You're, you don't want to work hard because it's, it's hot. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. This is kind of the equivalent of knocking on the door. They're there, and they're looking for hospitality. Now, in the ancient, in the ancient Middle East, and in fact, in the Middle East up to today, hospitality is a really, really big deal to you. It's a really, not, sorry, not just a big deal to you. It's just a really big deal to everybody. Middle Eastern hospitality is a really big deal. Because it's, in some of these areas here, it's, it's pretty barren. If you're, if you're traveling through, you depend on the hospitality of the locals for you, to, for you to survive. And if you're someone that someone comes seeking hospitality from you, the understanding is you put yourself at their service to serve them and to take care of them as best as you can. 
They're not an interruption to you. This isn't in the Middle Eastern mindset with hospitality. Someone comes and needs hospitality from you. They're not imposing on you. They're actually giving you a, a, a gift in that you now have the chance to serve them. That's, that's the way that, that the mindset works. And we can see that here. Because what does Abraham do? He puts this into practice. He springs into action. When he saw them, this is verse 2 and following, he ran from his tent door to meet them. Okay. 90-year-old Abraham runs and bowed himself to the earth. Again, that's an uncomfortable action for some of us who are not yet 90. But he bows himself to the earth and says, O Lord, which might just mean sir, so again, we're not sure. We don't know when does Abraham clue in who they are. But anyway, he says, Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. You see this whole mindset like, it's my privilege to serve you as, as even though you're strangers. Let, let me take care of you. So they said, do as you have said. Now again, is, is Abraham, just, Abraham just doing what you did for strangers? Does he know that these are more than men? We don't know. But what we do know is what he told them is, I'll get you a little water, a little bread. Okay? But what does he actually go and do? <laughs> I love this. Genesis 6, 18, 6 to 8. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Okay, that's like 22 liters of flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, not the freezer, but to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk, which would have been fresh, because again, they didn't have fridges to preserve this stuff. So this maybe was happening. He maybe had some other guy actually milking a cow as this is happening. Uh, and, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay. So in my notes this week, as I was like, just I have the biblical text and I'm making notes, I wrote the letters LOL above the word quick. Because I just think this is funny. Okay. Like when you think quick, you think like order a pizza, except then I actually have to wait for them to deliver it. So maybe I'll put some leftovers in the microwave. That's quick. Okay. Quick here includes making cakes from 22 liters of flour, butchering a calf. And cooking it up, and and then all you know, making this 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 feast for them. Um, those of you who have eaten Mediterranean food, your your taste buds are tingling right now, hey? Because you, you you think of all the spices they use, and the thought of these creamy curds and milk, and this roasted uh, roasted uh, beef, and and the the probably what would have been unleavened cakes, and this this would have just been an amazing feast. This is such a great display of Middle Eastern hospitality as Abraham, acting like a servant, stands by while they eat. Now, here's what's cool. Here's, what, here's what's also really cool. In the, in the Middle East, in the ancient world, after people would make covenants with each other, what would they very often do? They'd have a meal together. Very, that's, that's just what happened. So... It's, also, it's not hard to see what might be happening here on a bigger picture, most likely is happening here. The beginning of chapter 17, God confirms his covenant with Abraham. And now, literally, in the body, God comes to eat a meal with Abraham. So, so it's, it, we should probably not miss that this is a covenant meal that's further confirming the covenant between God and Abraham.
So look at what comes next in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Notice that they knew her name. Another clue that these aren't just strangers. And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So there's no doubt about who these people are at this point. Because they know her name. And, and the Lord, in, in a, the bodily form, repeats this promise that he had spoken to Abraham in the last chapter. He repeats it to him. This time, next year, your wife Sarah is going to have a son. So this is, as you see in your outline there, another promise for Sarah. Basically the same promise Abraham got. But now Sarah gets it. Because, verse 12, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 12. This might be the first that Sarah was hearing of this. Uh, um, no, I actually, I actually got it wrong there. Second half of verse 10, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So uh, we don't know that if Abraham told Sarah what what he had heard, but likely from the way she responds, this is the first that Sarah's heard of it. I mean, think if you're in Abraham's shoes, you're a hundred, your wife is 90. God tells you that she's going to have a child. It's, you're probably going to, um, not just bring that up at any old time. You're going to want to like really think about how, how am I going to tell her this? Um, because this is going to seem crazy. Well, God takes care of it and God tells Sarah through Abraham. And so how does she respond? Well, before it tells us how she responds, it just reminds us, just reminds us how old they actually are. Verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So there, we just know her, her body's not fertile anymore. Way past the age that she can bear a child. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. There's this theme of laughing again, and which goes with Isaac's name. And, and, and Abraham laughed, but Sarah's laugh, there's some question. This might be a bit more of a laugh of unbelief. And the rest of verse 12 describes Sarah saying, after I am worn out and my Lord, that's Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? Sounds a, a lot like, again, Abraham's question back in the last chapter. But, but, but from, from the way she responds in this question, it, it's more likely that Sarah is, is, is really questioning whether this is even possible. It seems like there's a, her question is coming from a place of unbelief. Seriously? How could that happen? This sounds like one big joke to her. But God hears and God knows. In verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. There's a, the Lord's response here. We, just, we just want to not miss anything here. First, God heard her. She can't hide anything from him. God knows your unbelief. When we chuckle about his promises, he, he, he hears that. Second, the Lord responds to Abraham about Sarah's unbelief. 
Implication that Abraham, as Sarah's husband, had some responsibility for her unbelief. Next, notice how God asks two questions before he makes a statement. Why did you laugh? Well, it's kind of obvious because you told a 90 and 100 year old they're going to have a baby. No, no, because second question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, no. So why did you laugh? And then a statement. This is going to happen. Now, this encounter with God ends with Sarah trying to deny it, right? Oh, I didn't laugh, she says, but, but God, God uh, makes a statement in verse 15. No, but you did laugh. You did laugh. And that kind of hangs in the air. This word laugh hangs in the air until in chapter 21, he laughs is born. Isaac, he laughs. And thus ends this encounter that Abraham and Sarah have with the Lord. Now, we're going to see next week the two angels leave for Sodom and and Abraham has an encounter with the Lord. And, and the story shifts to this whole thing of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot before we come back in chapter 21 to the birth of Isaac. Two encounters with God, one interlude of obedience. And I hope we can see, as we look at this passage, is how important it is for the story of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. It moves, their, it moves the story along in some really important ways because despite their stumbling with Hagar, God's plan to give them a son is, is trucking on. It's not stopping. And not even their old bodies, well past the age, are able to stop him. But as we step back from this passage, it does introduce a big question, doesn't it? God's decision to give them Isaac and to continue the covenant through Isaac means that Ishmael does not get to be the son of promise. The covenant doesn't get established through him. He's not a part of the covenant. He he's, has some benefits from being Abraham's son, but the covenant gets established with Isaac. God said no to Abraham's question that Ishmael would live before him. So again, we need to see this, that back in chapter 17, verse 7, God told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. That didn't mean all of Abraham's offspring. God went on, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. That did not mean each and every one of Abraham's offspring. God would choose some, but not all, of Abraham's offspring to continue this covenant promise. Isaac, not Ishmael. Later on, Jacob, not Esau. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this passage and this idea much later on, 2,000 years later, as he wrote the book of Romans, as he tried to explain a really difficult issue in his day. So in, in the first chunk of the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 8, the Apostle Paul unpacks and explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, God's plan of salvation, and, and how he is the one 
that is is the savior of both Jews and Gentiles in fulfillment of all that God had promised. But there's this big problem. Most of the Jewish people in Paul's day didn't believe. I mean, most of the Jewish people Jesus ministered to didn't believe, walked away from him, had him killed. All the leaders had him killed. A relatively small group of believers was all that was left. And that's Paul's experience. Paul goes around to town after town after town and gets chased out of synagogues, beaten and persecuted by his Jewish brothers for preaching that Jesus was the fulfillment of all God's promises to the Jews. This is a big problem, isn't it? The Messiah comes and no one recognizes him. No one sees him. And, and, and you wonder that could cause some people to be like, well, are we sure Jesus is the Messiah? Because if, if he was the Messiah, wouldn't more people be believing in him? And in Romans chapter 9, Paul's really wrestling with this. He says in Romans 9 verse 2 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's just broken up over this. And he says in verse 4, they are Israelites. By the way, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans 9 because that's where we're going to finish up this morning. He says in verse 4, they're Israelites. They've received so many blessings that he unpacks from their physical lineage. So why is it, why is it that so many of these Israelites are not believing in Jesus, are not trusting in the Messiah? Well, he explains in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all, so this is where we connect up to Genesis 17 and 18. Okay, this is why we're ending here, because just because of these connections. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, I'm just continuing to read from Romans 9 here, and I hope you're following along. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. In other words, it's not just all the physical babies, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Who gets counted as the offspring of Abraham? Not all his physical babies, but rather the children of the promise. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You see there that Paul is quoting from Genesis 18. The very passage we study today to make a point that not all of Abraham's physical babies are children of God. In Paul's day and in Abraham's day, it was some but not all that were counted as offspring. So what made some people be counted as offspring, as children of God, and not others? Maybe you could say, well, um, Isaac was chosen and, and Ishmael was rejected because Ishmael was, you know, the son of this Egyptian slave woman. But Paul blows that idea out of the water in verse 10 when he talks about what happens to Isaac's children. Listen to this, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Two grandbabies of Abraham, both children of Isaac, both children of Rebekah. And God rejects the older and chooses to establish his covenant with the younger. And why? Well, Paul says it wasn't because of works. It was before they had done anything good or bad. It wasn't because of works. But it was because of him who calls. It came down to God's choice. And that gets very clear in verses 15 to 18. For he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why Jacob and not Esau? Because God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I'll admit, this can be a tough pill for us to swallow. We are very used to choosing our own leaders and charting our own destinies. And for some Christians, their whole understanding of the Christian life comes down to their choices and the choices they make. And the idea that our whole Christian life actually comes down to God's choices and the choices he makes can be really unsettling. Now, it was unsettling for people in Paul's day too. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Great question, right? So if it's all God's will, if it's all God's choice, then how can God still find fault with people and punish them if it's ultimately just his choice whether they're in the covenant or not? Great question. How would you answer that question? How does Paul answer that question? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What's Paul's point? God is the potter. We are the clay. 
and he can do what he wants with his, with his clay. And if God wants to make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so he can show his great grace to the vessels of mercy that he's formed and prepared for glory, he can do that. Now, some people get really chewed up at this point because Romans 9 has been talking about, uh, except for Pharaoh, it's been talking about little babies like Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael. And, and you can sort of get this idea that all oh, these innocent little babies and, and God's just saying no to some and yes to others. And, and, and then we can add to that our modern ideas that like the world is full of basically good people who are all trying to get into heaven and God is just turning away some and being like, no, I didn't choose you so you can't come in even though you're basically good and really want to. Okay, that, that's an idea that a lot of people have. And that's where we have to remember Romans 9 comes after Romans 1, 2, and 3 which tells us that we're not basically good. We're all quite actually basically bad. And we're not trying to get into heaven. We're trying to get away from God as much as we can. That we don't all deserve salvation. We all deserve his wrath. And in God's mercy, he chooses some and saves them. And he doesn't save us against his, our wills. He saves our wills themselves. He brings us from death to life, shines the light of the gospel into our hearts so that we see and believe and, and we make the meaningful choice to follow him. And yet, if we're able to do that, it's because he himself has given us life from his good and sovereign will. Like Jesus said to his disciples, remember, you did not choose me. I have chosen you. Now I know this whole thing. Just, you know, we're, we're here this morning because this is, this is what the, where the New Testament goes with Genesis 17 and 18. And, and I know that this can be hard to believe. I know some of you this morning might, might struggle with this. And, and so I just want to ask you a question. If this is what the Bible taught, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if what, if what we're talking about here, that it ultimately comes down to God's choice, if that is what the Bible taught, beyond a shadow of a doubt, would you believe that? In other words, are you okay, are you okay with God being as big and powerful as he wants to be? And if your answer is yes, but you're still struggling, I encourage you to keep struggling, keep wrestling with this, keep reading what God has said about this, dig into his word, keep praying for understanding. But, but what I would say is that if you're at least willing for God to be as big as he wants to be, and you just want to know what his word actually says, that, that's a good spot to be in. And keep, keep working on that. On the other hand, though, I hope that none of us would be in the spot where we would say, no, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not going to worship a God who wants to be in charge of my life and make choices for me. I chart my own course. I'm in charge of my own destiny. Who cares what the Bible says? I hope none of us would be in that spot because we want to really make sure that we don't tell God the way that things are going to be, that we don't decide the way things are. We, if the Bible challenges us, we let it and we listen to God and we're open that God can change our minds because we don't have it all figured out. Now, Let's just, let's just make sure we know. Here's why this is important. This is important because it helps us process Genesis 17 and 18. God choosing to give them a son and choosing to give his covenant through Isaac and not Ishmael. It helps us understand what was going on with the Jewish people of Paul's day. That Paul, Paul was saying, God has chosen some of my kinsmen to be children of Abraham and to be saved. And others, the unbelieving Jews, they're kind of like Ishmael. They're kind of like Esau, physical descendants of Abraham, but not actually part of, of the covenant on the basis of God's choice. Paul believed this. And yet what we see, what did Paul do with this? 
This is so important. Did Paul say, it's up to God who gets saved and who doesn't, so I can kind of do whatever I want then, eh? You know, because God's going to do whatever God's going to do with or without me, so... I'm going to go on an extended vacation in Greece and just kind of do whatever I want to do. No, that's not. What do we see What do we see in Paul's life? He goes out and he preaches the gospel to as many people as he possibly can because he knows if God's called them, they're going to come. So I can go to the hardest place in the world. I can go to Mars Hill. I can go to places where no one knows about Jesus and preach Jesus because if God's called them, they're going to come. And this gave Paul incredible motivation in his life. And, and, and he had such courage and confidence. And it's interesting, if you look through the history of, of the modern missions movement, something we're not going to touch in our class on church history that we're doing, but the modern missions movement and the people who went out to fresh places in the world to preach the gospel were so often people who were convinced that God was sovereign over these matters. I know that so often we shrink back from sharing the gospel with people because we're afraid. We're afraid of what they're going to say. We're afraid of what they're going to do. And this truth that God is sovereign is a great antidote to that fear. We can share the gospel widely, boldly, because those whom God has chosen must and will come. So we have have nothing to be afraid of. And you might think, oh, I'm stumbly and I don't have all my words figured out. Preach, just share the gospel as best as you can because it's ultimately, it's about God and not about us. By the way, this morning, if you don't know Christ, you don't have to sit around and figure out if you've been chosen or not. Just believe. Just come to Jesus. That's how you know. If you come, then you go, oh, okay, he chose me because I came. But just come. If you like Lazarus, you hear Jesus coming, calling you to come out of the tomb. You don't say, well, I was dead. and I'm, No, you just come. And, and, and we celebrate that he saved us. And that's really where we're going to end here. This is why this truth is so important for our own hearts. Because if, if, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you are an Isaac. The living God chose you to know him, not because of anything good that you did. It has nothing to do with you. In fact, we see other places in Scripture, God loves to choose the most unlikely to be saved because it brings him glory. So don't think that if you know God and some people that you care about don't know God, don't think that's because you're smarter than them and you figured some things out and you have something to boast about. Well, I just don't know what their problem is, but I know what the truth is. No, 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 no. If you know God, be amazed that for no reason other than him, he just chose to save you. And that makes us just be amazed that if you have eyes to see, it's because he opened them. If you have ears to hear, he opened them. If you have a heart to know him, he gave you that heart. And we just go, why why me, Lord? And there's no answer to that question other than is his glory. And when we get to heaven, he's not going to say, good job, you figured it out. Rather, we're going to say, Lord, I praise you. I don't know why you chose me. Nothing to do with me. And so all the glory goes to you. That's why we're ending this morning by just singing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And and as we think about when the race is complete, my lips shall still repeat, I'm so glad I figured it out. No, yet not I, but Christ. Let's take a moment here just to be quiet and to pray. And, uh, And then 
we're going to sing that song together, and then I'm going to close, close our service in prayer. But let's take a minute here to just be quiet in our hearts before the Lord and ask for his help as we process all these things. O Lord, all the glory to you for our salvation. Salvation belongs to you, O God, and it's yours to give. And none of us deserve a second look from you. And if we, Lord, know that we have been known by you and been called into the fellowship of your son, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought to know you, Lord, all the glory, every last drop of glory for that goes to you. Give us hearts, Lord, that just want to give you all the glory for that to be amazed that each one of us who knows you is is a miracle child who's been born again by your word and not by any action of the flesh and lord if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know that they know you would you would you bring them to their knees before the cross and that they would know that whoever calls on the name of the lord is saved will be saved and may they come to you lord and be saved And would you help us, Lord, with confidence to want to share this good news with as many people as we can. And Lord, we can't wait for that day when together, those of us who here on this earth have labored together in these trenches will be able to to one day in eternity see each other and be able to say, yeah, yeah, not I, but through Christ in me. And together rejoice that Jesus has brought us safely home. Would you bring that day soon, Lord Jesus? Would you come quickly? And would you keep us faithful until then? And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.